I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rosen, the Executive Director here at Long Now. Uh, it's great to see a sellout crowd for algorithms. Nice. Uh, we've actually known Brian for quite a while. He's uh, been coming to these talks for years, uh, mostly at the behest of Rose, uh, his now fiance. Congratulations. Um, so yeah, it was part of her wooing strategy, apparently, is what she just told me. Uh, four years of long now talks seem to have done it. So if anybody else in the audience is looking for advice. Um, a couple of announcements tonight. One is that, uh, as you might have heard in the last uh, the last talk we did, uh, we have released all uh, how many years it, it has been? Uh, Fifteen years now, uh, just about of uh, of long now talks uh, without a password in standard definition on our website, and we have released an iOS app um, and iPad app that and web or Apple TV app uh, that you can use to watch them. Not all of them are up there yet. We're still digitizing that format, uh, but about 50 or 60 are up in that format now. So uh, you can now watch sitting on your couch. Um, the other announcement is that uh, on June 6th was Long Now's 20th anniversary. And uh, for all this time, uh, we have been speaking at you, uh, and what we want to do is something a little bit different, um, which is to have uh, on October 4th uh, on uh, here in San Francisco at Fort Mason in about three different venues uh, a member summit where uh, you can all come and all the almost all the programming is going to be you speaking to each other. So we're gonna we're working with Brady Forrest, the founder of Ignite, uh, to do a whole Ignite series. So we welcome submissions from all of you members uh, to uh, to submit five minute talk subjects, and we're gonna um, curate you know twenty or thirty of those five minute talks, as well as a, a bunch of other content like that. Um, and uh, I think uh, Andrew's putting together uh, our our long short film festival of the long shorts we've been doing over the years and more. So we'd love to get submissions of that. Um, so there's going to be a lot of uh, ways for all of you to connect with each other because we've we've always known that we have an amazing membership and we've always been trying to figure out the right ways to connect you all. So this will be uh, our our attempt. We'll do it once every 20 years, uh, and so hopefully we'll see how it works out. Uh, so that, anyway, so <clears throat> save that date, October 4th. It'll be both uh, a daytime programming and evening programming. It'll go all the way uh, late from uh, midday to late that night. And lastly, uh, I want to introduce our um, long short for tonight. There's uh, Sometimes it's really difficult to come up with what the long short is going to be. Uh, this particular one really chose itself. Uh, it's a poem by our speaker that was made into movie form uh, about the subject that you're going to hear. So enjoy. In America, red-eye planes fly east from Los Angeles to New York between sunset and sunrise, collapsing the night. The flights west from New York to Los Angeles predominate during the day, stretching at open. 
The mass of the American air fleet leaps at the sun, west as the sun heads west, and east as the sun beneath them and over Asia resets to east again. Northern birds slosh down from the pole to the equator in the late months, while southern birds are sloshing from the equator down to the south pole for their spring. We humans have made with all our fires and all our fuels the longitudinal version. Looking at the Earth from above, centering over the North Pole, watch night and day sweep around. See figure one, the planes winging helter-skelter around the rim. Now, fix the line of dark against light, steady, and let the land and water circle beneath it. Watch figure two, the planes in the continual flow to sunrise from sunset, like two hands cupping the earth from her sides. A friend of mine makes a hundred grand a year, optimizing the algorithms that arrange flight plans. In contrast, Helianthus annuus doesn't know it twists its florets in the Fibonacci sequence. Our economy bristles with efficiency, with individual wills building and buying, collaborating and competing by the millions. But from the long view, and just as base, just as elegant, a field of sunflower buds craning for light. Jet planes ought to sound like the sky inhaling. Speaking of the sky, tonight, um, special night, it is full moon, coincident with uh, summer solstice. That hasn't happened for, I think, 70 years or so. And the long now, they're quite frequent. <laughs> I am Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, the next speaker is Kevin Kelly, and he'll be over here at the Herbst for the first time in a while, since they reopened it. And uh, he's been saying for a while, he'll be talking about the next 30 digital years. He's been saying for a while, he thinks that computers are in the process of teaching us what it means to be human. And lately I've come across some of the people that are working on the uh, algorithms that will accompany uh, self-driving cars. And I suspect that computers are going to teach us how to be moral with great precision. And indeed, it turns out computers are also teaching us how to be smart and how to decide well with great precision. And for you life hackers, the guy with the 
the golden deck of advice is Brian Christian. Thank you, Stuart, and thank you, Xander, and thanks to the Long Now Foundation. Um, the example that I would like to begin with is one that is particularly and I might say painfully familiar to those of us who live in the Bay Area, which is the search for housing. Now, we typically have this idea that being a rational consumer means uh, having an array of options, considering all of them, ruminating about the one that you like the best, and then selecting that. In a sufficiently competitive marketplace, that's simply not possible. Um, as anyone who has looked for an apartment in the Bay Area knows, uh, open houses are mobbed, and the keys often end up in the hands of whoever can physically foist a deposit check on the landlord first. Now, such a savage market leaves little room for the kind of fact-finding and deliberation that's supposed to uh, characterize this kind of a process. Instead, what we're left with is a situation in which we must make a binding commitment either way, as soon as we see the place. Either we put our deposit in and we take it and we never know what else is out there, or we walk away to gather more information knowing that that opportunity is gone and someone else has gotten it. So what do you do? How do you try to make an informed decision where the, when the very act of informing yourself might cost you potentially your very best opportunity? It is, a, it is a cruel situation bordering almost on paradox. Fortunately, there's an answer. And the answer is 37%. <laughs> if you want the very best odds of getting the very best apartment, Spend exactly 37% of your search, or 1 over E for the more mathematically inclined in the audience. Um, Non-committally, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad E gets a, gets a clap, that's good. Um, spend 37%, the first 37% of your search, so if you've given your, yourself a month to find a place, the first 11 days, non-committally exploring your options, you can leave your checkbook at home, you are just purely calibrating. After that point, be prepared to commit, deposit and all, to the very first place you see that is better than what you saw in the first 37%. This is not merely an intuitively satisfying compromise between looking and leaping. This is the provably optimal result. And we know this because apartment hunting, especially in a competitive marketplace like San Francisco, uh, is an example of what computer scientists and mathematicians know as an optimal stopping problem. And a, an optimal stopping problem describes any situation in life where we face this structure of a decision, where we have a sequence of opportunities that come one after another in, in, in sequence, and at each point, we either have to commit and go all in, or walk away and lose that opportunity forever. Some people have argued that this structure not only describes their search for real estate, but also our search for love, um, where when you're in a relationship with someone, you at some point face the decision of, am I going all in or am I walking away? And if you walk away, <clears throat> you potentially forfeit the ability to change your mind later. Uh, so you might be so bold as to say, 
well, I'm just going to apply the 37% rule directly to my romantic life. <laughs> Define an interval over which you want to find the right person. <clears throat> Calculate 1 over E with 37% of that range. And know that this is the exact point at which to make the shift from your dating life being just for fun to things starting to get serious. <laughs> of course, it all depends on the assumptions you're willing to make about love. The thesis of, of the work that I'm going to talk about tonight and, and this book, which is a collaboration with my uh, longtime friend and UC Berkeley cognitive scientist Tom Griffiths, um, is very simple. There's a set of problems that all of us face in everyday life as a function of having finite space and finite time and finite information. Um, whether it's looking for a house or a partner or uh, deciding where to go out to eat or deciding how to deal with our overflowing closet or how to, how to manage our time. We think of these things as being innately and uniquely human problems. They're not. They, in fact, correspond to a set of some of the most fundamental problems studied by computer scientists over the last 50, 60 years um, or more. And this gives us a real opportunity to learn something about how to make better decisions in our own lives by looking at what those problems look like and uh, the characteristics of their solutions. Uh, the book follows this uh, line of thinking into 12 different domains, and we're going to talk about two of them tonight. Uh, in greater detail, and I'll give a, a sort of a thumbnail overview of the rest. Um, and the first are optimal stopping problems. Now, the 37% rule comes from the perhaps most famous optimal stopping problem, which is known as the secretary problem. Um, it was first popularized by Martin Gardner in his column in Scientific American in 1960. And true to 1960-style, it has this very madman flavor of you the implicit male second person, um, are hiring an implicitly female secretary. Um, and candidates show up in random order. At each moment, you interview one and must either hire her and send everyone else packing or send her away and interview the next candidate, but she never comes back. Um, so it was popularized and kind of entered into the American mathematical imagination in the 60s. But the problem itself goes back to 1949, which was the first known uh, public presentation of this problem uh, by this guy, Merrill Flood. And it seems uh, that Flood had its romantic implications in mind even from the very beginning. You see, Flood was giving a presentation at a mathematics conference at Princeton, and the minutes of this conference were being taken by Flood's daughter who was 18 years old at the time, and had just started dating a much older man. Flood and his wife strongly disapproved, and they hoped that this relationship would end quickly. And so to kind of implicitly give the message, Flood presents the secretary problem, and this is um, many years before the solution was known, but he hoped that his daughter who was taking the minutes would, would get the hint that the solution was probably more than one. Fortunately, the relationship was indeed short-lived. Um, the book tells uh, some cautionary tales of scientists and mathematicians um, applying this sort of logic directly to their love lives with, I think it's fair to say, mixed results. 
One of my favorite stories is that of Carnegie Mellon professor of operations research, Michael Trick, uh, who was in a relationship as a graduate student, um, asking himself this question of, how do I know if I'm in the right relationship? And all of a sudden it dawns on him, oh my god, dating, of course, it's an optimal stopping problem. And here I am, I'm an operations researcher, I'm just going to run the numbers. And so he ran the numbers and he found 26.1 as the age after which to be able to uh, commit to the next person that you meet who's better than all the people you've already been dating. Um, he was in a relationship at the time, and so he knew exactly what to do. He proposed on the spot. And she shot him down. Now, Trick faced what mathematicians who study this problem know as rejection. Um, and as it turns out, you can make a simple modification to the 37% rule to account for the possibility that the person might say no. Um, so if, for example, there is a 50% chance of getting rejected, then the stopping threshold moves to 25%. You should be willing to make an offer only 25% of the way into the pool. Um, and if it doesn't work, just try again. So, so the, the mathematical wisdom here is propose early and often. <laughs> The other side of the coin is represented, I think, best by the famous astronomer Johannes Kepler, who, um, after the death of his first wife, went on an epic and seemingly endless series of courtships to try to find the perfect person to, uh, to marry. Um, he was really interested, and we, we have access to Kepler's diary and his letters, which are kind of staggeringly candid about all of this. Um, he was really interested in the fourth woman that he dated because of her tall build and athletic body. Um, but he was even more interested in number five because she really got along really well with, um, with her prospective stepchildren. But nonetheless, he persevered and continued dating over many years, ultimately a total of 11 different women, before having one of these sinking realizations of like, I've made a huge mistake, and realizing that it was number five all along. What was he thinking? So he hops a train to Regensburg, gets down on one knee, apologizes for dating a half a dozen other people, and asks her, hopefully you're, you're not uh, you know, promised to someone else at this point, maybe you'll take me back. And fortunately for Kepler, she does, and the rest of their lives are very happy together. Um, now Kepler faced uh, what's known in the field as recall. So this is the ability to return to a candidate once you have dismissed them and still have a chance of getting them back. And um, in his letters, Kepler really beats himself up for continuing to date people after he met this amazing woman, number five. Um, and he, he decries what he calls his restlessness and doubtfulness of why did I continue um, with this futile search and, and leave this amazing person behind. Um, well, it may give Kepler some peace of mind, but not his second wife, that when you have the ability to recall past candidates, restlessness and doubtfulness are indeed part of the ideal uh, optimal solution. And you should not make any offer until you're at least 61% of the way through the pool. And only then, if you fail to meet anyone better than someone from the first 61%, then you hop on the train to Regensburg and try to, try to make it right. Now, optimal stopping um, covers a lot more uh, problems like 
than simply the, the dating and the housing scenario. And one of the other ones, which is also, I would say, acutely and painfully familiar to us San Franciscans, is the question of when to park. <laughs> so we've all had this experience of, you know, approaching some venue and, you know, you're, you're trying to hold out for the best space and you see an opening and you think to yourself, there might be a better spot. <laughs> but if I keep going, the next person behind me is surely going to take it, and even if I swing back around, it's gone. Um, and so you may want to, um, we include this figure in the book, you can cut it out and, and put it on your dashboard. <laughs> so um, to an optimal stopping theorist, it all depends on what's called the occupancy rate, which is what percentage of the spaces are filled in that, in that particular neighborhood. Um, and so depending on the occupancy rate, um, there is a specific number of spots away that you should wait and then take the next available spot. <laughs> so in a neighborhood that's 90% full, hold out until you are seven spaces away, which is about one block. Uh, if it's 99% full, then you should be willing to take the first available space 69 spaces away, which is about a quarter of a mile. Um, if it's 99.99% full, I would not drive at all. Um, and actually, this is, this is an interesting case where looking at the optimal strategies for drivers um, not only gives us a, a way to make better decisions when we're behind the wheel, but in this case, it also gives us some insight into the urban planning problem of parking. So uh, the, the kind of traditional and typical way of thinking about parking was that it's simply a question of, we have this resource, public spaces, we want to allocate them maximally to the maximum number of cars. But if you look here, uh, going from a 90 to a 99% occupancy rate only accommodates 9% more cars, but it involves every single driver driving 10 times as far to find a space and walking 10 times as far to the destination. So um, more contemporary urban planners kind of inspired by some of these ideas have, um, have begun working with city governments to push for lower occupancy rate uh, in, in downtown urban areas, which means raising prices. Um, and one of the parking gurus uh, behind this idea is named Donald Shoup from UCLA. And one of the first instances of this is through SF Park here in San Francisco. Um, I, when I interviewed Donald Shoup, you know, arguably the world's expert on how to park, what his own <laughs> research had taught him about his, how to optimize his commute to UCLA, um, he said, yes, uh, I ride my bike. One of the things that I think is really interesting, just uh, in any domain, there's this irresistible question, which is, do people innately actually implement the optimal strategies, or do we do dumb things? And when researchers have tested optimal stopping problems in the lab, they find something very consistent, which is um, uh, the, the optimal rule in a classic secretary problem is 37%. Uh, lab subjects implement a 31% rule. That is, they have mostly the right idea, but they consistently start to commit too soon. Now, there are any number of ways you could sort of think about this. Maybe we're, uh, we're loss-averse. That's a classic example. Um, I think one of the most interesting nuances here is that someone looked at the data and said, well, you know, the, the stopping rule that humans are using is optimal if we were to assign a 1% penalty to, the, to their utility for each option they look at. And you know, their, their fellow researchers said, okay, uh, well, that's weird because there is no penalty for taking more time. 
And then, of course, they realized, of course there's a penalty for taking more time. These are laboratory subjects doing an extremely repetitive and boring experiment. Um, there's always a penalty for taking up more of someone's time. And this, to me, points to what I think is one of the more profound ideas about optimal stopping problems in general, which is that um, when time itself has a cost, then you need to find a point in any decision-making process when it's not worth it to continue thinking, to continue gathering information. And so, uh, given that we are all just intrinsically, as human beings, subject to this cost of time passing, every decision-making process becomes a question of when to stop. Now, optimal stopping covers some of our, the largest decisions that we make in life, whether it's housing, spouses, jobs, these sorts of things. Um, but one of the most prevalent decisions that we make uh, is one that's iterated over and over and over in the course of a day, perhaps so many times that we don't even realize it. And specifically, it's a decision that takes the form of a tension between doing our favorite things and trying new things. So specifically, you, know, you want to go out to eat. Do you go to your favorite restaurant, or do you try a new place that just opened up and has gotten some good reviews? On the way there, do you listen to a classic cherished album, or do you try to discover some new music that you might enjoy? And who do you take to dinner? Do you go with your spouse or your close family or your, your closest circle of friends? Or do you reach out to the coworker who is new to the office or an acquaintance that you'd like to get to know better? This is a case where we intuitively understand that a life well-lived is some kind of balance between doing the things that we know and love while staying open to new possibilities. Of course, that intuition does not tell us what that balance should be. And fortunately, computer scientists have been trying to find this exact balance for now almost a century, and they even have a name for it. They call it the explore-exploit trade-off. Um, so in this context, exploring means spending your energy gathering new information. Exploiting, uh, which to a computer scientist doesn't have the negative connotation that it does in ordinary English, just means spending your energy leveraging the information you've gathered to get a known good result. And so this comes up within computer science, uh, notably in the optimization of ads. So here, I perhaps do not have to explain this to this particular crowd. We have Google search results with some ads highlighted in red. Um, Google makes, I think, something like 95% of their uh, revenue from selling ad space. And for any given search keyword in this, in this case, um, there is a huge pool of ads, and specifically, there is the ad or set of ads that has gotten the best historical track record of getting clicks, and there is any number of other ads that they simply don't have as much information about. Either they haven't tried them as much, or they're new to the system, or whatever. And so here, this tension between going with the known good thing and trying something new becomes extremely explicit and quantified. You can ask the question of literally what percentage of users should see the ad that has the best track record of getting clicks, which percentage of users should see new things that we want to get more information about. That could be better, they're probably not, but maybe they could be. Ideas and strategies that have been honed over many years of working on problems like this within the computer science community and the tech world um, are just now starting to make their way into the field of medicine. So here to illustrate the idea of clinical trials, we have Morpheus. Um, 
And uh, if you think about it, a clinical trial has, has much the same structure, where for any particular diagnosis or condition, there is some known best treatment, and there's any number of other experimental new treatments that could be better and could be worse. Um, and so, uh, as I will explain, some of the, the key concepts from the computer science work are now making their way into the FDA. How does a computer scientist think about the explore-exploit trade-off? Um, the canonical problem in the literature is called the multi-armed bandit problem. Um, it's a pretty strange name, but it comes from the idea of the slot machine as the one-armed bandit. And so a multi-armed bandit is just a room full of slot machines. So imagine you walk into a casino, it's full of these slot machines. Um, they each pay out at a different frequency. Some machines are better than others, but you just have no idea which, of course, until you try them. And so quite simply, let's say you're going to be there for the afternoon, you're, you, know, you have enough time to pull 100 levers. What strategy gives you the best chance of walking away with the most money? Well, for most of the 20th century, this was considered not only an unsolved problem, but an unsolvable problem. And mathematicians during World War II, British mathematicians, uh, joked about dropping the multi-armed bandit problem over Germany um, as the, the ultimate instrument of intellectual sabotage, just to waste the brain power of, of the German mathematicians. So to make, make some of this, um, make why it's such a thorny problem a little bit more explicit, let's imagine you walk into a casino that just has two machines. One you've played 15 times, nine times it paid out, six times it did not. The other machine you've tried just twice. Once it paid out, once it did not. So what do you do next? Which handle do you pull now? Um, the most straightforward way of addressing this problem is to compute what's called the expected value, which is just what percentage of the time has it paid out. So in this case, it would be 60%. In this case, 50%. And so the, you know, the natural thing is just to say, well, OK, I'll just pull the handle that has the best track record. But again, there's a sense in which this one one machine, we just don't have enough information to kind of write it off for good. And again, this was considered basically, you know, in the category of kind of brain teaser slash, you know, career suicide, because this just wasn't really considered to be the kind of thing that had an answer. Um, but over the years, a series of breakthroughs, um, starting with this guy Richard Bellman in the late 50s and continuing uh, with John Gittins in the 1970s and so forth up, up till today, there have been a series of sub substantial breakthroughs on the problem. And I think the, the critical thing about this question of which of these two machines to pull is that it all comes down to something that we haven't explicitly talked about yet, which is how long you plan to be in the casino. Now, uh, Tom and I call this concept in the book uh, a, a term that will be familiar to Long Now members. We call it the interval. <laughs> um, and a way to think about it is, you know, imagine you've, you've moved to Spain for a year for, for work or something. The first restaurant you go to on your very first night in Spain is literally guaranteed to be the greatest restaurant you have ever been to in Spain. Uh, the second night, you say, this is amazing, I'm going to go to another place. It's got a 50% chance of being the greatest restaurant you've ever been to in Spain. <clears throat> night three, you're down to one and three, that's still pretty good. Um, but of course, this goes down as uh, your experience allows you to set a higher bar. And so the odds of, of making a great new discovery that kind of dethrones your pre-existing favorite uh, goes down as a function of your experience. 
And the other key thing here to note is that the value of, of making a great new discovery also goes down as you run out of time to enjoy it. So if you happen to find this incredible, charming place on your final night in Spain, it actually is kind of tragic because you think to yourself, well, geez, I, I wish I'd have known about this you know, eight or nine months ago. That would have been great. Um, and so naturally, our decision-making should shift as a function of where we perceive ourselves to be within the relevant interval of time over which we're making the decision. Now, thinking in these terms has, for me, uh, completely changed the way that I think about one of my favorite movies, the inspirational 1989 classic Dead Poets Society, in which has Robin Williams as uh, poetry professor John Keating saying these inspirational soliloquies like, seize the day, boys, make your lives extraordinary. And armed with the knowledge of the explore-exploit trade-off, we should cry foul here. Because Robin Williams is, in fact, giving two contradictory pieces of advice. If we just want to seize the day, we should pull that machine with the higher expected value. But if we want to make our lives extraordinary, then surely it's worth pulling the handle of that 1-1 machine at least one more time. Because if it is, in fact, better, we have the rest of our life to enjoy it. And if it's not, we have the rest of our life to do the other thing. Um, some of these ideas have begun moving out of the field of computer science and starting to uh, influence some of the uh, sibling kindred fields. Uh, and for me, one of the most interesting is the field of psychology and cognitive science, where the idea that our, our strategies should change relative to the, to the interval that we're on um, is influencing how developmental psychologists and um, cognitive scientists think about both the early years in our life and the later years in our life. So to, to give us an example of the early years, um, this is an infant that's plugging a power cable into its face. <laughs> we have a lot of stereotypes about babies and, and, and young kids in general. They're kind of random. They're generally bad at things. Um, they uh, have a really short attention span. They have a really aggressive, what's called novelty bias. There's a whole literature on how they just like relentlessly prefer new things to things that they already have, no matter how great their existing toys are. Um, and so it's, you know, it's tempting to just think of them as inept versions of adults. Um, but psychologists, including um, Alison Gopnik uh, here at UC Berkeley, are appealing to some of the ideas in the literature on the explore-exploit trade-off to make the argument, well, no. Um, being random and aggressively preferring new things is exactly what you should do when you're at the beginning of your entire life. You know, if you've just burst through the casino doors and you've got 80 years to be there, you really should just run around pulling handles at random. <laughs> you really should just put every single object in your house into your mouth at least once <laughs> because it may be delicious and you'll have 80 years to enjoy it if it is. Uh, the explore-exploit trade-off also, I think, offers some pretty tantalizing uh, uh, way of thinking about one of the other strange things about the human species, which is that uh, human infants and human children are kind of uniquely useless compared to other species. So one of my favorite facts on this is that an, a, a gazelle, uh, three hours after being born, can outrun a cheetah and escape being uh, eaten by a cheetah um, 95, with 95% success. Um, 
humans are not, I mean, we're basically useless for the first 20 years. We aren't allowed to operate heavy machinery. Um, so what's up with this? Well, the explore-exploit trade-off offers us at least one, I think, pretty provocative way of, of making sense of this idea, and, and it's that um, when your room and board is being taken care of by your parents, um, you are free to have a purely exploratory beginning of your life in a way that the gazelle is not. Um, that when, when the moms and dads of the world are buying your lunch, you are not dependent on those early jackpots in order to just stay alive. And so you can enter into a more purely exploratory phase, which is probably exactly what you should be doing at, at the very beginning of your life. Now at the other end uh, of life, we have um, people in their later years, older adults, and we likewise have a set of kind of preconceived ideas and biases about um, what the lives of older adults are like. You know, with the, uh, they're, that they're very set in their ways, they're very resistant to change, resistant to new ideas. <clears throat> There's a lot of psychological uh, literature on this idea that they, have, they maintain fewer and fewer social connections. And so it can be tempting to, to regard this as, like, oh, it must be just lonely or something like this. Um, but again, sort of drawing on the, on the intuitions of the explore-exploit trade-off, uh, researchers like Stanford's Laura Karstensen are making the argument that no, 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 that's not what's going on at all. Older adults are deliberately and aggressively pruning their social lives down to the people who actually matter um, and not dealing with their flaky acquaintances anymore because, you know, who cares? And um, that they have, they have entered the exploit phase of life where they uh, are, are deliberately focusing on the things that really matter most and are happier for it. Now, the, the algorithms that get computer scientists excited are um, what are called minimal regret algorithms. Um, so in the multi-arm bandit problem, you can quantify regret as the amount of money uh, that you could have made if only you had known what you knew at the end at the beginning, um, which I think is a pretty satisfying way of quantifying the concept of regret. Um, and there's a family of algorithms that offer what is called minimal regret, and specifically, they offer logarithmic regret. And there's good news and bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is you will never stop making mistakes, no matter how well you learn and how optimal your strategy is. The good news is that your mistakes will uh, decrease in their severity and frequency over time continually as you go through life. And I think, I think that's something we can all feel pretty good about. Um, now, the FDA has been uh, looking over the disciplinary fence at some of these minimal regret algorithms for ways of rethinking their approach to clinical trials. Now, the, the classic clinical trial is just your sort of randomized controlled trial. We give 50% of these people this thing, 50% of these people the other thing. Um, we pretty much just close our eyes and let the study proceed, except there's kind of an ombudsman person who's there with like a giant red button if something totally goes off the rails. But otherwise, we'll, you know, we'll look at the end and, and see the information at the end. Now, um, this is itself an algorithm that is known to computer scientists. It's called Epsilon First, and it's not known to be a very good algorithm. It has linear regret, for example. Um, 
And so there is this push within the medical community uh, among biostatisticians and computer scientists and so forth to use some of the very same algorithms that are already hard at work behind most websites optimizing um, ads uh, for situations in which the stakes are in fact much, much higher. Um, and one of the arguments that I've heard is, you know, how can you just coldly appeal to some algorithm when human lives are on the line? Uh, and I think an equally valid counterargument is, how can you not uh, use this strategy that has you know, an, a guaranteed minimal regret when the stakes are that high? So um, it's extremely interesting to me. These, these documents are from 2010 and 2015. So um, the FDA is literally, as we speak, um, trying to think about how to, how to adopt some of these ideas and, and rethink their approach to clinical trials. And so for me, this is very significant because, you know, th thinking computationally about this, this fundamental human problem, I think offers us some, uh, some insights and some rewards at a, a number of scales. You know, we, we can think differently about where to go out to eat. Um, we, it gives us a way of thinking about kind of the, the arc of human life and how our thinking does and should change as a result of kind of where we perceive ourselves to be, not only in terms of our lifespan, but in any of the other smaller intervals that we're on in life. Um, and lastly, it gives us some, I think, surprisingly concrete guidance in the cases where, where the stakes are really the highest. Um, so now I'm going to talk very briefly about some of the other uh, things that are on the book, uh, in the book, and... Um, which hopefully we'll have an opportunity to get more into um, in the conversation. So uh, the book pursues this kind of computational lens to, to human decisions and human problems um, over a number of domains. So the, the first half of the book is really just following, tracking the different domains of things. Um, in the sorting chapter, we talk about the best way to alphabetize your bookshelf, and more importantly, whether you should. Um, <laughs> And sorting theory also gives a little bit of consolation for sports fans on cases where uh, we should or should not trust the outcome of a sorting procedure. Um, in the chap uh, chapter on caching, we talk about memory management and storage management, and specifically uh, what can computer science teach us both about how to deal with our overflowing closet at home and with the phenomenon of human memory and human forgetting more generally. In scheduling, uh, we look at scheduling theory, both as it uh, arises in the machine shops of the Industrial Revolution onto the operating system CPU schedulers of today. Um, and we basically ask the question of, what, if anything, have we learned about human procrastination and human time management from several decades of fighting the, the interminable beach ball of death? Um, what causes that? What do we do to make it stop? And what can we learn from this? Um, the chapter on Bayes' rule gets into the computer science of how to make good predictions about the future. And this is something that I think is particularly relevant to Long Now members, um, and especially to people who uh, traffic on Long Bets, uh, which is a, a wonderful website. Um, so if you want to make accurate predictions about the future, um, it turns out that one of the absolutely simplest but in some ways surprisingly accurate algorithms is called the Copernican Principle, which just says that you should always assume something is going to last twice as long as it's lasted so far, um, which, is, which given certain bounds is, is actually quite a reasonable heuristic. And so we include predictions for like, you know, Google will probably last until 2032, the United States will last until like the mid-23rd century, and um, if, you're, if you've met someone on Valentine's Day and you're trying to decide is it 
is it premature to book New Year's Eve tickets? Um, the answer is yes. And <laughs> when is it not premature to book New Year's Eve tickets? Uh, the answer is Saturday, July 23rd. <laughs> the second half of the book um, builds an argument for what we call computational kindness, which is a way for, for applying some of these principles and some of these insights into thinking more societally about how we interact with each other, both interpersonally, but also you know, as, a, as a policy question. How can we design a world that is computationally kinder to us, that, that presents us with easier problems to solve? Um, and it also looks at cases where, w what does computer science tell us about problems where there is no simple, straightforward, optimal algorithm? And this to me is extremely interesting because I think it gives us an opportunity to rethink our notion of what rationality itself is. And so I'll just say a few words about this. So we have this intuition that being rational is about being exhaustive, you know, considering all your options, thinking everything through to the end, being deterministic, following a policy that's guaranteed to work every time, that's going to give you the same result reliably every time, and is exact. It gives you an answer that is both highly precise and with a high degree of certainty that it is the answer. And looking at the computer science of dealing with so-called intractable problems or NP-hard problems um, shows us that up against the hardest classes of problems, computers do none of these things. Um, they are not exhaustive. They explore a limited subset of their, of their possible options, and they trade off the cost of making an error against the cost of delay. Um, they're not deterministic. They use randomness. They follow procedures that are not guaranteed to produce the same answer reliably. Um, and they're inexact. They use approximations. They use trade-offs. Uh, they produce answers with partial degrees of certainty. So one of my absolute favorite examples of this is in encryption which is, of course, essential to you know, everything from military to banking to online shopping, everything. Um, encryption on the web begins with generating huge prime numbers. And so there is uh, mathematicians in, earlier in the 20th century boasted about how useless the study of prime numbers was um, until all of a sudden it became extremely important to national security and all these things. Um, so there's, there's an intense value in good algorithms for determining whether a number is prime. Um, and it turns out that the one that we currently use is wrong 25% of the time. And we've just decided that's okay, we'll just run it a few times and it's probably going to cancel out over time. Um, so I, I interviewed some of the implementers, for example, of OpenSSL and I said, well, how many Miller-Rabin tests do you guys run? He said, ah, 40 is probably good enough. This gives us a 1 over uh, 4 to the 40 chance of making an error, and that's like 1 in a million, million, billion, and, you know, that's okay. Um, so even at the highest level, um, computers don't necessarily adhere to these things that we, we stereotypically think of computers as doing. Um, and out of that, I would say, emerges a different way of thinking about rationality and a series uh, of principles and pieces of advice that, that don't necessarily look like we might, what we might expect to get from computer science. They say things like, don't consider all your options. Don't necessarily go for the thing that's best every time. Make a mess on occasion. Travel light. Let things wait. Trust your instincts and don't think too long. Relax and toss a coin. <laughs> and unlike the principles that you might find, for example, in, in a typical self-help book, they're backed by proofs. <laughs> Thanks.
My leg went to sleep. <laughs> the last one on there, uh, I'd love if you said something about computational kindness. What's that? Yeah. <clears throat> the basic idea of computational kindness is that um, the way that we interact with other people, both explicitly and implicitly, poses them problems to solve. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can, you can, from this argument, make a bridge from computer science into ethics mm -hmm. and say that we ought to interact with people in a way that minimizes the computational cost. And so I would say out of this, um, I'll give you a, a, a very explicit example. So um, I've just started looking at the real estate market. And the real estate market drives me nuts, but perhaps not for the reasons that it drives most people nuts. It drives me nuts because it's computationally unkind in that it requires you to do more strategizing than is necessary. Mm. Um, so homes are sold via single price auctions where everyone writes down their bid. The person who writes the big biggest bid wins and they win at the price they wrote down. And so it creates this incentive to get inside the head of your competitors. Mm -hmm. figure out how many other people are bidding on the house, and uh, what's called shade your bid, which is figure out the maximum price you'd be willing to pay, and figure out the appropriate amount less than that to bid, such that you still win the house, but you save money. And it just requires an, an awful lot of strategy. You want to try to suss out how many other people are in the auction, what do they think I think they think, um, and so forth. And it turns out this is all completely unnecessary. There's this really wonderful... Uh, mechanism that's called a Vickrey auction, where everyone writes down their bid, and the person with the highest bid wins, but they pay the price of the second highest bid. And it turns out that the Vickrey auction is what is called, in, to game theorists, strategy-proof, which is there's absolutely no better way to play the game than to just write down your exact valuation of the house. <laughs> the game optimizes for you. Um, and so that to me is a really, um, it's a specific example, but I think it's a powerful example of this broader theme, which is, um, you know, in game theory, it's, this is called the revelation principle. It's that any auction that involves this sort of recursive, I'm trying to get into your head process, mm -hmm. can be replaced with an auction that has different rules, in which the best thing that you can possibly do is just be totally honest, and the house will go to the same person for the same price on average as in the strategic version. So that to me gives me this almost utopian view that there are these opportunities, this kind of low-hanging fruit to, to change the world in ways to just eliminate these costs. Are there <clears throat> clarifying uh, algorithms like that that might apply to voting politically? Yeah, I mean, voting is a, is a great example. Um, so it, the word strategic is a, negative, is a pejorative term to a computer scientist or game theorist. Um, strategic why, why, why? behavior... Tactical wins, or what are we saying? Uh, in, in game theory and, and what's called mechanism design, strategic behavior is anything other than doing what you really think. And so, if I... You know, if we imagine the, uh, you know, the, the Nader-Gore election or whatever, um, maybe I'm a Green Party supporter, but I vote for Gore anyway because I don't want to throw the election... That's strategic behavior. I'm not, I'm not doing what I really think. Mm -hmm. And so there are mechanisms for voting, like instant runoff voting, ranked preferences. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some disheartening results in the literature that say that there basically is no completely strategy-proof voting mechanism. There is a strategy-proof auction mechanism, but there's not a strategy-proof voting mechanism.
But I still think instant Therefore, voting is what? much better. I mean, what is it that, <laughs> that leaves us with a failed uh, system? Yeah, it turns what do you out... Do? Okay, so what, what's yeah. the algorithm for dealing with a failed system? <laughs> um, I'm not an expert on voting theory, but my understanding is that for every possible voting mechanism, you can imagine some sort of horrible pernicious condition, but the current voting system uh, is one in which we are already seeing the bad pernicious condition in evidence, and so we might as well try something else at least for a while and see if that's better. <laughs> I have two questions, one from Barry Gordon and one from Wayne. Um, Barry Gordon wondered if you used an algorithm to decide when to stop working on this talk, or <laughs> the book, by the way. Uh, Wayne asked, did you apply optimal stopping in uh, choosing your fiance? Did she apply it in choosing you? Um, uh, do you, you yeah. use this stuff? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I, my fiance, Rose, claims that I told her at some point that 37% of the average American male lifespan was something like 29, and uh, you know we were dating at the time, and I was 29. So I, apparently, I said something like, "So if this if this works, I'm all in," um, <laughs> which I was, which did, and I was. But I don't. It's it sounds like the kind of thing I would say, but I don't remember saying that. I mean, I think <clears throat> I will say this. Um, you know, the 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 language of exploration and exploitation has literally become the way that I talk about these sorts of choices. So, uh, you know, m my fiance Rose and I will, will decide, you know, do you feel like exploiting or exploring tonight? That is, that is actually wow. how we have these conversations. And is uh, sort of giving it that generic framing, does that help the discussion and help you get move quickly to a decision of a new restaurant or not? Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, so we were assuming that I would be moving into her place in Oakland, and so this, this gave us a very clear directive, which is that we should exclusively go to our favorite places in San Francisco and relentlessly try new places in Oakland, even though they're probably not as good as our favorite places, because we have, you know, this whole new time opening up. But the plot twist was that we changed our minds, and she's, in fact, moving in with me in San Francisco, and so it was like 180, let's aggressively go to new restaurants in San Francisco and only go to our favorite restaurants in Oakland. So. Pretty smart. Uh, Ted Sum asks, uh, what was your recess, research process and path for actually researching the book? And I'm guessing that this book grew out of the previous book, which was called... Uh, the Most Human Human. And it was about AI, basically? Or? Yeah, yeah. It was so, about my participation in what, the Turing what, test. What was the sequence of events for you leading from book one to book two? Yeah, ironically, I have been working on this book since before I even wrote my previous book. Um, I thought that this would be my first book, um, but I... What the hell happened? Um, I got wrapped up in this crazy adventure participating as what's called a human confederate um, in a Turing test competition, which is... Um, <laughs> I'm sure many people in the audience know, but for, for those who don't, um, Alan Turing had this idea in 1950. He's asking these philosophical questions. You know, can machines think? Could we build a machine that could think? And if so, how would we know? And his idea was, we'll just have a test. We'll have a contest. We'll stick a panel of scientists into a bunch of chat rooms. They'll be talking simultaneously with some random humans hidden in a room down the hall and some software programs claiming to be random humans in, in a room down the hall, and that we will reach a point at which we can't tell the difference. And so I, I uh, kind of insinuated myself into the history of this 
by becoming one of the humans hidden in the room down the hall. Um, but I was something of a ringer because I had spent the pe previous year researching the history of the Turing test and interviewing all the, all the possible experts. So you were that. far from a random human. I was far from a random human, yeah. And were you trying to pretend to be a computer, or what, the, what were no, you No, it, it, is, it is my job to persuade the judges that I am, in fact, a real person, not a computer claiming to be, despite really the fact that the hard, I assume. computers are saying I mean, the same exact thing. How yeah. do you, uh, was there, hmm, this is an interesting trick, James, when you're in a Turing <laughs> test. How do you persuade a human that you're a human, not a computer? What's, is there a method? Um, that, that is the question that obsessed me for the years that I was working on this. So how do you try to act human in a competitive situation? Um, and, um, and to make matters even more intriguing, so the contest, every judge assigns a, a numerical score to each conversation, which is how confident they were they were talking to a real person. And every year a computer program gets the highest score and wins this it gets a high score among the other computer programs and wins this thing called the Most Human Computer Award. You get a bronze medal and three grand. It's, it's very nice. But there's also every year a real person that gets the highest score among all of the real people um, as having most successfully persuaded the judges that they were human compared to the other humans. And you, if you get this, uh, you are awarded what's called the Most Human Human title for the year. And so I found myself kind of, uh, despite myself, not only competing against the computers, but in fact competing against the other real people. How'd you do? Um, the, the spoiler, uh, the book's been out long enough that I, I'll, I'll, I'll proudly say that I, I won the title of Most Human Human. So that book was researched and written when? Mm. It came out in 2011, so that I was working on that from like late 08 to, to 2011. Okay, we're 2016 now and still counting. Um, and the conversation, the public discourse about AI seems to be moving right along. What have you noticed from then to now? Oh yeah, um, right. So this this book uh, came out in the spring of 2011, which was pre-Siri, just to give you an idea of how long ago that really was. Um, <laughs> And uh, the thing that's really striking to me, I remember going out on the hardcover book tour in the spring of 2011, and the, the number one most popular question I was getting asked at the time was, do you think AI will take over my job? On the paperback tour a year later, the number one question was, do you think AI will take over the world? In a um, destructive way. In a, yeah, 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 just burn everything to the ground. Um, and so that for me was, was just a really striking, I mean, I, I really think over the the last several years, which is not that long of a time, this has gone from a completely sort of loony bin sci-fi thing to mm -hmm. like some of the, the best scientific minds here in, here in San Francisco, the OpenAI Institute, some of, some of the most respected computer science researchers, people that I enormously admire, um, are taking this problem extremely seriously. And so as a result, I myself have been converted from, from a skeptic thinking this is all a bunch of you know, sci-fi hogwash. To the like dread about the existential issue. Yeah, like we, we actually do need to be thinking. So you, you are worried? Um, I'm concerned because in my view, the, the scenarios that are bad resemble very closely the reasons that the world is already bad. Um, so one of, the, one of the big problems well, interesting. in AI is defining what's called a, a good objective function, which is 
how do you formalize the thing that we want the system to do in a way that won't make us sorry for what we wished for? I would assume what you want to formalize is things you don't want the system to do and then explore otherwise. Is that not um, the case? The typical model is that you define sort of a reward function for things you think are good. And inevitably, you discover some horrible externality that you forgot to build into the system. Right, so you're doing it wrong. What you want to do is work from what are the sides of the road don't you don't want to drive on and who cares where the road goes. Yeah, that may be. Yeah, that may be. So I, this, this, is, this is an open problem. So yeah, the more people thinking about this, the better. And I see it as significant because I think it's what's already wrong with the world. That um, we, we have defined various objective functions, mm -hmm. whether it's, um, you know, quarterly earnings or GDP or whatever, um, that we, we take to be approximate correlates of human flourishing, but we have optimized them at our peril and created these huge externalities. So this is why, this is for me kind of the awakening moment at which I realized that a lot of these AI, so there's this AI thought experiment called the paperclip maximizer that right. says, you know, what Bostrom. if a paperclip... Nick Bostrom came up with that yeah, one. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Right, right. right, what if a paperclip factory invents AI and it turns the entire galaxy into paperclips? Um, I'm not worried about that scenario, but, I, but I'm worried about the genre of things that involve this kind of like, we've, we've created this objective function and we've relentlessly maximized Some kind of runaway maximizing thing. Um, so is the discussion which by 2012 was about, are they going to end the world at the stop there, or is AI discussion moving on since then? Um, I think the, the question of will AI take my job has also kind of evolved into will AI take every job. Um, hmm. And so for me, this is another interesting thing where um, ideas like universal basic income have like gained track, I, I, would, I would argue have gained a, a foothold culturally by starting with the people who are really credible about AI, saying we've got to think about sort of a post-jobs economy. Um, and, you know, to my, to my point of view over the last couple of years, has started to kind of percolate into mainstream society, starting with, you know, mm -hmm. the computer scientists and the AI people. Jill Tarter asks... How do we, or should we, deal with existential problems, unintended or unknowable consequences in the far future? Oh, well, yeah. We're, we're interplanetary now, I think. Um, one, of the, one of the chapters uh, in the book talks about this idea from machine learning that's called overfitting. Um, the basic idea here, I mean, this is similar to what we were saying before. So in a sense, we're talking about an interval which is sort of infinite. In a, yeah, I mean, there, so there's a couple ways to come at this question. So in an explore-exploit context, you can ask this question of, okay, if my strategy is supposed to depend on the interval that I'm on, how do I try to optimize for the infinite indefinite future? That would be the so-called infinite game, where you're always improving the game for millennia after millennium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so there, you may be relieved to know that the infinite ge but geometrically discounted future reward version of the multi-armed bandit problem was solved in the 1970s. Uh, by John Gittins uh, at Oxford, um, uh, who at the time was, this is to me a sort of an interesting aside, he was an uh, uh, academic mathematician, but he'd been hired as a consultant to the Unilever Corporation, who wanted to know what percentage of our budget should go into speculative R&D versus just marketing profitable drugs. 
And so corporations are interesting examples of something. Boy, that's classic explore exploit, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it all kind of depends on the horizon that they, they feel they're mm -hmm. operating on. And so I think corporations, oh, nations, yeah. and institutions are examples of these things that prioritize present survival, obviously, but aspire to be indefinite. Mm -hmm. And so some of the algorithms that come out of the the infinite uh, horizon version of the problem are, are interesting to me. Yeah, we in Global Business Network, which taught scenario planning, we ran into a version of this problem, which is that very large corporations need to do scenario planning because basically they're looking at, uh, in government departments and so on, they're looking at a very long time frame. But it's absolutely worthless for a startup to do scenario planning because the startup is making a bet on a version of the world that they think is probably true. Yeah, and they're in a sense totally R and D, and uh, so you know having multiple ways the world might go is not that useful to them because they're in pure discover what's going on, adapt, pivot, all that kind of stuff. They're in, in a very short time frame. Yeah, I mean, there's this really interesting result that um, in in machine learning, there's this idea called regularization, which is that um, you, it's kind of the formal version of Occam's razor. It's that like if you have a bunch of different models that all give you a pretty good prediction. Mm -hmm pick the simplest model, the one with the fewest knobs on it, the fewest parameters. And um, I think this is very interesting when it comes to long-term planning because one of the ideas here is that um, you, know, you, you train every model on the, the data available to you at the present, but you're trying to generalize it into the future. Mm -hmm. And so the farther into the future you generalize it, uh, the more you should regularize your model. That is, the, the simpler it should be, the fewer parameters that it should be. And so hmm. what I kind of take this to mean is that if you're, if you're trying to predict you know, the state of, of the economy or the market next year, mm -hmm. you want elaborate models. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to make really long-term thinking, then principles serve better than models, you know, things with the fewest parameters. Yeah, you know, we use guidelines along now. It's a similar kind of idea. Um, Damon asks, what can algorithms learn from neuroscience around human decisions? And you're also getting into things like Danny Kahneman, the system one, system two, intuition versus you know, serious study, and uh, the behavioral economists who are looking at these things. Um, how do those fields relate? Um, I can't speak with a great authority about neuroscience, but, but one of the things that for me is really fascinating about uh, the human brain from a neuroscience standpoint is that um, if you think of a brain uh, as being kind of like an organization, uh, the larger it is, the more discombobulated it can become. Society of mind, Marvin Minsky says. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so lit literally the more volume the brain takes up, the more potentially out of sync, you know, the computation can become because it's, you've got this latency between the hemispheres and so mm. forth. And so there's this really interesting anatomical study that talks about like the, so for, for electrical reasons that I don't fully understand, thicker axons can transmit signal uh, more rapidly across a long distance. So you see this, if you, if you look at mammal brains, the thickness of the interhemispheric axons scales with the volume of the brain because you need to move signals faster from one hemisphere to the other because they're just further away. Mm -hmm. um, but the trade-off is that you're less volumetrically efficient because you have these huge pipes. Um, and so if you plot all mammal brains on a curve, you get one outlier, which is 
humans. And specifically, we're an outlier in that we do not have as thick of axons as you would expect, given our brain volume, which means that our brains are more volumetrically efficient. They can do more computation in that amount of space at the risk of greater interhemispheric lag. So, um, you know, speaking to this kind of hmm. decentralized self, society of mind thing, uh, our species has made a very particular gambit, which is that it's, we have a more powerful computing organ, but it's, it's more out of sync with itself. More out of sync with itself. Uh, is it also possibly more general purpose in some sense? Sort of. Um... I think so. I mean, I th I think this kind of speaks to the the long period of of uselessness at the beginning of human lives. That um, that that uh, it, it, my understanding and, and it rings true to me is that that goes hand in hand with the, with the generality that. Um, we're not, we are not sort of single-purpose uh, cheetah-evading machines, but mm -hmm. we are these sort of general machines. But we, but we so that's, that suggests as we get to a 200-year lifespan, instead of uh, settling down and becoming an adult at 20, it'll be more like 40. I think that's probably true. I, I suspect that's probably already happening. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show the audience agreed. <laughs> Um, here's a question from Boris. Looks like Smos. That can't be right. Um, what aspects of computer science thinking should not be adopted by <laughs> humans? Um, I think most of the history of computer science has been characterized by an assumption that the machinery is reliable. And if you assume that the machinery is reliable, then what you want to do is maximize... That wasn't true for a long time. Computers were funky, and there was all of this Shannon of, you know, how do you get reliable stuff from a, you know, unreliable yeah, yeah. signal and all of that. Are they reliable now? Well, I mean, what's interesting is that the machines themselves are, I, I have to imagine, many orders of magnitude more reliable than, you know, the vacuum tubes and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the scale at which we're doing computations is also much greater. So... Um, when you're talking about like extremely large distributed computations, um, the chance that some freak gamma ray comes in and flips a bit, you know, at this exact moment, uh, hmm. or some there's some sort of weird neutrino burst that has some, you know, these these completely freak things start to have non-zero, you know, occurrences, mm -hmm. and they start to wreck your computation if you redo the computation. We um, also see that in genetics. I just learned the other day that the cold-adapted pigs uh, in the northern part of Korea uh, flipped one base pair huh. out of three and a half billion to uh, get that capability. Oh, that's cool. Right, so there's, there's, there is kind of a renaissance within theoretical computer science to care about what's called robustness. And so... Care about? Uh, what's called robustness. Mm-hmm. So, for example, sorting algorithms, um, the, the kind of punching bag algorithm for computer science students is called bubble sort, um, which sorts something by looking for out-of-order pairs and then just correcting them at this very micro level. And it's kind of famously inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, but if your comparator operation is uh, unreliable, 
then if you make a mistake, you've only made a mistake of you know distance one. Mm -hmm. um, whereas these sort of famously lauded uh, you know, uh, linear rhythmic algorithms like merge sort, if you make a mistake in, in a merge sort operation, you could end up in the wrong half of the results. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, in the book, we talk about this in the context of sports. So you know, March Madness, if your team loses the first game, you're just permanently relegated to the bottom 32 teams, even mm -hmm. if you were the second best team in, in the whole tournament. Um, it turns out there's, there's some really interesting work coming out of the University of New Mexico right now on, on robust sorting algorithms. And uh, the, the most robust quadratic or better sorting algorithm known is what's called comparison counting sort, which is effectively like a round robin tournament where each item is compared to each other item. Um, and the traditional view is that this sucks, it's quadratic, you know, whatever. Um, but it turns out to be the single most robust algorithm known against it, a noisy comparator function. And so this, I think, provides a, a little bit of a, a, a double-edged thing for sports fans, which is that um, if your team loses, you think, inappropriately early in the, post, in the, in the merge sort postseason, um, you will get sympathy from a computer scientist. But if your team fails to qualify for the postseason because their comparison counting uh, record in the regular season is too bad, um, you will not get sympathy <laughs> from a computer scientist. That is a robust result. And we all crave that approval from the computer scientist. <laughs> so I'm curious if some things are getting into a kind of a post-algorithmic world with deep learning and things like that, where there are very, very complex systems, very distributed, working with vast amounts of data, uh, and mining it in, in uh, astonishingly in, in inventive ways, some of them that you can't entirely track. And uh, you're getting systems that can do things um, that uh, it looks right, but is there really an algorithm in there that you can say that, you know, well done, that's the right algorithm? Or uh, you know, what are we facing here? Yeah, there's, there's something, in my opinion, uncomfortably inscrutable about deep learning specifically, you know, I, I, some good friends of mine work at Instagram and Facebook on, on some of their algorithms for uh, what to show you when. Mm. And they, there is this kind of, well, we, we tried all this crazy ML stuff, machine learning stuff, and it outperforms the best, you know, old school algorithms that we have, but no one knows how, to, how it actually works and no one knows really how to debug it. Um, using the traditional debugging methods of, you know, track down the exact point at which the, the problem happened. Um, and I suspect we will make strides in this direction, but it is a little bit discomforting when someone tells you, yeah, we've got this system and it's better than anything any of our actual staff can make, and so that's why we're using it, but no one really knows how it works. Um, that does that does start to sound like the first Is five minutes of a sci-fi movie. Is that permanently inscrutable? Do you think? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it does start to sound like the first five minutes of a of a sci-fi B movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the next thing is consciousness, and then you're in trouble, or not. Um, the first thing it may say is, "I'm sorry." <laughs> but that would have it having to understand about the concept of apology, which. This is a deep one. Um, is that a permanent condition or are we sort of seeing these deep learning capabilities emerging from a complex process we can't completely parse 
but we can then ask the deep learning process to please tell us <laughs> in terms we can understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your mechanism here? I mean, to me, it's very interesting. I feel like the justice system, the human justice system works this way, where if someone does something bad, but they can give you a really compelling story uh -oh. about why they took that action, then it's oh. somehow okay. <laughs> and once these programs discover that, they can just take the easy way out and tell us a compelling story and we say, oh, that's it. <laughs> and then we're, yeah, then we're really And in. then we're dead meat. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, hmm. that's the end. <laughs> so, okay, there's a sequence of events from, uh, you started on this book, then you veered into the AI thing. Uh, and discovered the human versus AI, and AI keeps moving, and you're, now I've done this book. Um, do you get a sense of what the arc is here, the narrative? Is there progress in your own sequence of events here? What's next? Yeah, I mean, there, for me, I'm, I'm currently uh, preoccupied with three things. One is this AI safety stuff, because I... I really? Yeah, I mean, I see it as being... Um, to me, it is interesting because, uh, I mean, my, my like, academic background was as a computer science and philosophy double major, and so I, I, I sort of think of each discipline in the terms of the other. And so for me, what's interesting about the AI ethics stuff is that it is, it is giving us an opportunity, and by that I mean, you know, possibly urgent crisis, um, to make headway on these long-standing ethical problems that have kind of always been there. Right. Um, that, that, that now it's crunch time and, and we really need to do something. So that, that to me is exciting, you know, conceptually, in the way that I thought um, thinking about the Turing test was really interesting philosophically because we've got this 2,500-year-long history of philosophers asking what makes humans unique and distinct and special. Mm -hmm. And going back to Aristotle, we've answered this question by c contrasting ourselves with animals. Mm -hmm. um, and so I see the development of the computer and AI in particular as kind of turning 2,500 years of Western philosophy on its head because we now ask the question of how are we distinct from machines? Um, and so This I, time, we're the animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're, we're I think, much more, uh, feel much more kindred with animals than we did before the computer. Ooh, that's, that's kind of sweet. Um, so are you looking at this dangerous AI problem from the sort of uh, existential risk standpoint or from the what do we do in the next couple of years of research standpoint? I'm interested in the question of um, how do we articulate what it is that we really want? Um, how do we create an objective function um, that, that actually does capture the things that we have in mind when we, when we talk about Say it. some sample versions of that. What would be an um, example? I mean, there, for me, what's interesting about this is that if you look at utilitarianism, there are a bunch of these paradoxes in utilitarianism that are called the repugnant conclusion. And the idea here is that like these very simple naive ideas of like, oh, let's just maximize uh, total happiness across all people. That sounds great. Well, you know, you may end up in a world in which you've severely overpopulated the earth and everyone is, you know, infinitesimally happier than zero. 
and there's just so many people that, that your objective function tells you that's a better world, that's what you've asked for, some total of all human happiness. Um, so then you think, okay, that's not what I really meant. What I really meant was uh, the, optimizing for the mean human happiness. And then you get these crazy scenarios where there's like this cast of permanently kind of indentured or tortured people. So just, just as long as everyone else is more made more happy than those people are made miserable, then this is the world you've asked for. You've optimized for me. Net, net, we're you say, okay. You say, well, that's not really what I meant. Um, and so for me, I'm, you know, again, I, I'm interested in like the, the sort of current cultural moment with respect to AI because it gives us, um, it, it sort of puts these things in the crosshairs in a way in which like these utilitarian paradoxes have been discussed in, you know, philosophy departments and these white papers for X number of decades. Um, and, you know, ju just like it was with prime numbers, you know, people studied prime numbers for a long time, and then they suddenly became extremely useful and extremely important. Um, and I, I think some of the similar, some of these similar things are happening in utilitarianism, where it's like some of these paradoxes that seemed completely abstract and just like mind games for oh. philosophy departments, all of a sudden now it's like, wait a minute, we actually... It's 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 a big problem that we can't define like the world that we want. In yeah, philosophical things like the trolley problem, or you know, turning up with these self-driving cars and totally. stuff like that. So you say looking at uh, AI hazards is one thing you're focusing. on. What else? Yeah, the other two. Um, I'm interested in computational linguistics. So um, I think that there's really an interesting. Um, we're, we're, the field of computational linguistics is kind of having a moment. What's that and mean? Um, I think it's, it's a technology that's coming into its own. Um, the idea of natural language processing um, is now uh, due in large part to advances just in computation. Mm. Um, it's now uh, a field that is kind of like ripened in a way that I think is teaching us. Again, it's like what, what is our newest technology teaching us about our oldest technology? That to me is an interesting question. Oldest technology being language. Being, you know, the word. <laughs> that may not literally be the oldest, but you know, for rhetorical purposes. <laughs> Sounds like there's a book there. Um, and what's your, what are glimmers of what, you know, this work on computational linguistics is teaching us about language and human? I mean, I think, it's, uh, I think it's changing our sense of what a word is. Uh, for example, there was, a, there was a Supreme Court ruling in 2011. There was this case that went to the FCC where AT&T was asked to... AT&T was subpoenaed by the FCC to provide some document. They did not want to provide the document. So this is in the wake of the Citizens United ruling on corporate personhood. They said, we are invoking our right to personal privacy. <laughs> um, and this goes to the Supreme Court and it becomes this linguistic question of are all persons entitled to personal rights, personal privacy mm -hmm. and so forth. And so what seems like this, uh, this kind of corporate thing actually becomes a linguistic ruling on is personal the same word in adjectival form or is it a distinct word with a distinct meaning and, and we should treat these as unrelated concepts. And so for to my knowledge, the first time, the court has traditionally used the OED on these things and traced the etymology and say, well, in old Saxon or whatever. In this case, they turn to um, like big data corpora studies saying, okay, let's just 
ingest every New York Times article ever, you know, every Wikipedia article ever, and we will run these sort of word cloud things and see, do people, do humans use the word person in the same contexts that they use the word personal? And the, the answer was no, they don't. They use them in distinct ways. Thus, the court ruled that they are two different words and not every person is entitled to personal things. Um, therefore, AT&T had to cough up the documents and the, the majority opinion ends with the great zinger, we trust that AT&T will not take this personally. <laughs> I'm tempted to end there, but let's. Uh, it sounded like <laughs> there was one more area that you're that you're focusing on. What would that be? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in what I've been calling reproducible journalism. So it seems to me that um, this this is sort of inverting my role. So rather than uh, thinking as a writer about computer science, I'm thinking as a computer scientist about writing. Great. So it strikes me, you know, whenever I see you know, I'll read an article that'll say, you know, uh, the grid is now 6% renewable, or, you know, we, we're on track to reach price parity of fossil fuels and, and solar, you know, at, at year X, or, you know, the, the police have shot X number of people this year in this town. Hmm. Um, I, this, this thing goes off in my brain, which is like, where are you getting that? Yeah. You know, I'm just reading, it's like, it's like someone giving you a time series and just giving you a single data point and mm -hmm. saying, you know, here's the story, and that's not the story. So um, it really seems to me like there's an opportunity to kind of bring, bring uh, journalism and, and some of the political, the, the way that we make claims about civic things mm -hmm. um, into the 21st century. It seems like uh, there's really an opportunity to do something there. And do you see any of these things going toward a book, or is it too early to guess? Um, it's I'm, you know, if my previous experience is any indication, they will all happen, but not in the order that I think they're going to happen. <laughs> right, right. Um, so you've got a book. Uh, how long has this book been out? The algorithm um, it came out in mid-April, late April. So it's been out there for a while. You've been touring a bit, and you've dealt with people dealing with it. Um, just say something about. What, I mean, as a writer, one always wonders, what are the people going to do with this thing? Yeah, I've yeah, yeah. labored over for a couple of years. What are people doing with your book um, that uh, delights you and puzzles you? Might uh, be two okay, different things. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I have to think about the puzzles one. Um, I may not yet know about the puzzling things people are doing. Oh, well, uh, how about delights and disturbs? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, as you can tell from my manner when I talk about these things, there is, a, there is an element of the book that is completely in earnest, and there's an element of the book that's tongue-in-cheek. And so I'm, you know, we, Tom and I attempt to delineate these things tonally. Um, I'm sure there are people that are going to take the tongue-in-cheek things extremely literally to disastrous results. <laughs> um, you know, so for example, if you, if you read the fine print on the 37% rule, uh, you discover that it is optimized for a particular objective, which is giving you the best chance of getting the best thing. Um, however, it, it only succeeds 37% of the time. Um, and so <laughs> here's a case where even following the optimal that's strategy... That's a failure number, Fails 63% right, yeah. <laughs> of the time. Um, and so, yeah, I almost feel like 
the need to put some kind of disclaimer, like we are not responsible for 63% <laughs> of you who do this and it doesn't work out. Are people coming to you and saying it didn't work for me, asshole? I mean, what are they doing? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I think over the years we will probably get correspondence of, from people saying, I did or did not propose to my partner based on reading this thing. Right, right, right. Um, and it either, I, there have been a couple success stories where people have said, <laughs> um, you know, I've now, I've now made this change after reading your book, and thank you. And, and that obviously makes me very pleased, but I'm sure there will be the reverse, um, I'm sure. Uh, and, but there's one other, at least two other audiences here. They're the philosophers that you've hung out with these years and the computer scientists you've hung out with these years. What do those guys make of this? Yeah, I mean, I think the, to me the book is able to kind of bridge those disciplinary communities in a Do way they want really... to be bridged, those two? That's a good question. I, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, for me, it's interesting. Um, for for non-computer scientists, the book is kind of a gateway drug into computer science. Great. Um, and for computer scientists... Uh, the book reveals the the highly interdisciplinary nature of the things that their comrades are are working on and discovering in a way that's not necessarily obvious to people who are in the trenches optimizing these things. Mm -hmm. um, that you know, for example, I I know a ton of people that work in ad tech, and so and saying to them, you know, this is actually kicking off potentially, you know, the biggest change in in medical clinical trial practice in 50, 60 years, mm -hmm. um, the people who are, who are in the weeds don't necessarily realize that, that there are these larger scale things. Uh, and so I think it's very satisfying for both camps to have an opportunity to, to see the connection between the two. So that to me is extremely satisfying. So it's like the prime numbers folks discovering we need you to defeat the Nazis and they're going, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so it's to me that's a really satisfying dialogue because, mm -hmm. like, my own background being in computer science philosophy, and I was probably the only person to graduate from the computer science program and go into a terminal degree in poetry. Um, you know, I I have lived my life very much as a cross pollinator of these things, and so it's yeah. and and they all feel extremely interrelated in my mind, and so being able to, um, you know, it's it's sort of like being a interdisciplinary yenta. It's like you, you're able to put these people, that, that to me is an extremely satisfying thing. If I'm interviewing an expert hmm. and I say, oh, so you're working on the same thing that so-and-so is doing in the sociology department and they say, wait, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. Give me their name? Give me their email address? Oh, I love it. Um, and so those moments for me of, of finding these things that resonate across those lines, it's extremely rewarding. Well, Brian, you're living proof that uh, humans really do have a general purpose brain. <laughs> Thanks. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.